Okay. Welcome to the Horror Makes Us Happy. This is like the podcast where we're... Really <laughs> <laughs> Get okay, the chuckles out of the way. Yeah. <laughs> Go for it. I fully support that. All right. And... <laughs> Here you have the earth. It's a sweet looking earth, you might say. Brown. Okay. Yeah, it's like you said, get all the chuckles. Yeah. <laughs> there might be still a few. Welcome to Horror Makes Us Happy, the podcast where we ask the question, what is it about horror that makes us happy? Your hosts are Steve Becker and myself, Chris Whitman, and you can find out more about us at our website, horrormakesushappy.com. Before we get started, this is the trigger warning. This is a horror podcast, so we could uh, delve into such sensitive subjects such as murder, child abuse, the R word, the F words. There will be words, and they will be bad words, likely. Bad stuff. Go bad, away. Bad things. There's there's your trigger warning. It's what we're going to talk about. So now I can say fuck and talk about bad shit. But before we get into that, Steve, what do we have coming up? I imagine quite a lot since you went to StokerCon. Yes, we've still got <clears throat> 10 to 12 people on the uh, queue for people that we're going to be interviewing, authors, actors, directors, producers. Without going into that, we've got listen parties on Discord every Sunday at 7 p.m. Uh, Chris's website, piecesofflesh.com. Yep. I, my book, A Guide to the Recovery Toolbox, uh, got a coupon for that. You can purchase it, the electronic version, for 99 cents on Smashwords, coupon code LE69E. Um, Patreon subscribers, I recently did a catalog of what all we've put on there. There is 72 hours of extra content on Patreon. That's three days. Yes. 4,307 minutes. Hmm. Uh, we just also posted 300 clips on TikTok. We I went back through and redid all of the excerpts for all of our episodes from day one using better audio and better a better video. So that's up there. I did that on Instagram and TikTok. Instagram is being a little fussy because they have upload limits. So I'll be getting to that hopefully within the next actually month because I don't know if they're going to let me finish uploading. It's a whole thing. Yeah. Um, contact us if you'd like to be on a street team. We're looking for people who would be willing to go hand out stickers at uh, conventions around the country, get the word out. <clears throat> um, thank you for to Robin Face for their re review on Apple. If you can leave a review, all kinds of good stuff. There's plenty of stuff to talk about. But today, Ms. Becky Spretford, maybe I'll take the intro. Uh, mm -hmm. She is the librarian out of Chicago. She's also an author. Uh, she's written the reviewer, the Reader's Advisory Guide to Horror. She's a horror review columnist for Library Journal and also a reviewer for Booklist. Uh, thank you for joining us. Yes, thank you. And I think there was uh, even more than that that you wanted to let us know what you're currently working on. So I guess dive into that. Okay, that would be great. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I have. pleasure. A lot of things I do. So my main thing is that Reader's Advisory Guide to Horror. It is the third edition. It's basically a textbook for librarians. It's put out by the American Library Association's publishing, publishing arm. And that's the main thing I do in regards to your horror community. But currently, I am uh, writing reviews all the time. So the horror review column comes out in library journal four times a year and so we're going to be posting this in october and that is one of the years i have a column so that went live on um october 1st and it always has eight books and an interview with an author my current interview in october is going to be with jenny Kiefer, the co-owner of butcher cabin books who has a debut novel coming out 
in early 2024 with Quirk Books called This Wretched Valley. Cool. And um, as part of my library journal work, I do also get to do a horror genre preview every year. It is the cover story in the July issue. And it's been one of their most popular issues every year since I started doing it. Um, this past July, we did I did an interview with Cass Caw and the Library Journal did a photo shoot with them on the cover. It's fantastic. Mm-hmm. I'm always writing reviews for Booklist. Those come out pretty much every issue. And it's October. So I'm running my very, very popular 31 Days of Horror, which is I post every single day on my horror blog. I have a general library blog as well, but the horror one is mostly just a placeholder. I, I say it's the place for free extra content to my book, basically. Mm-hmm. It's a free update to the book. And on there, though, in October, DLC. I post mm-hmm. every single day. And I have the the crux of it is I have lots of information for library workers, but I do invite people and you two will be on there um, talking about why they love horror and sharing all the different reasons, which goes really well with this podcast. So that will be the entire month that people can take a look at. And then there's an archive of it from every single year as well. Cool. Awesome. Yeah, that was how we found you initially was I was doing research on uh, horror websites and had found your blog. Uh, Well, I know that we briefly talked about the theme of this podcast, and I think I had suggested to you Mr. Skip's episode. I don't know if you had gotten a chance to listen to that. I did. Okay, then you know what's coming. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Let's start off with childhood. What are some of your earliest memories of scary things? It's really interesting that this comes up a lot when I'm interviewed, you know, how did you get involved with horror? And so I've spent a lot of time thinking about it because on paper, at first, I didn't really understand that I've always liked things that are just slightly askew from reality, but on the darker side. And so going back, of course, you know, I loved scary stories to tell in the dark. I just thought that book was just amazing. But My biggest inspiration for horror is not one I think that comes up very much, but I was obsessed with Shel Silverstein as a kid. And when you go back and look at those poetry, I mean, I would spend hours reading and rereading Where the Sidewalk Ends and A Light in the Attic. And going back as an adult, you look at some of those poems and some of my favorites, they're absolutely terrifying. (laughs) You know, like, you know, the one about the girl who gets buried to her death in garbage and all these strange monsters and twisted things. And that was something I just was completely obsessed with as a child. I also, like a lot of people my age, I'm in my late 40s, had a father who read a lot of Stephen King. So, you know, Stephen King was always around the house and I would pick them up and read them, but not like a lot of people, as many much as a lot of people my age. And I was a little too young for Goose, or a little too old for Goosebumps, although I knew about them and all of that. And then I think the really big moment, and I found a lot of community with other women my age, other Gen X women, that this is a common way we got into horror. And it was with V.C. Andrews. And I can so vividly remember this because it was so much tied to my identity as a child growing up in New Jersey. So I grew up in New Jersey and we have malls and it is, there are stereotypes for a reason, right? (laughs) We had a local mall in Flemington and I uh, also grew up Jewish. And so we had Hebrew school on Wednesday evenings. And I know exactly how old I was because it had to be before my bat mitzvah. 
And I had my bat mitzvah just before I turned 13. So I know that I was either 11 or 12 when this happened. When you got to middle school, I was able to walk myself to Hebrew school after school. And then my father would pick me up when it was over. And I had younger siblings. And one of the things we did was stop at the mall on the way home. And going back, I realized it was probably because my younger sister, who's like seven years younger, um, needed to be put to bed. And I know now having grown children, but when they were younger, you know, any disruption or excitement with the older sibling when you're trying to go to bed is is difficult for the younger sibling. Mm. And we always hit, because my dad was a huge reader, we always hit the record store. He was a good, big music guy too, and the bookstore. And while I wasn't always allowed to buy a book, obviously I was a big library user as well, but once in a while I was allowed to get a book. But we Mm. always were looking and it was an old B. Dalton's at a mall. I remember Dalton's. And I went to the occult section in the back. I found it one time. I think my dad was there looking for something like a Stephen King paperback and I followed him and I stayed there and those covers, right? Mm. The, the flowers in the attic. That was when it was really popular with Mm. the die cuts and the opening and the, the kids and the story and the back cover copy. And one day I was allowed to get a book, especially if it was a paperback. And I picked that and my parents did not censor anything we read or listened to. I did the same thing with my children and he's like, sure, whatever. It's a book. It's at the bookstore. You can have it. And I just, I, I was hooked. And, and it's interesting because I think growing up and moving into adulthood from there, and that was just such an important moment, right? Right before puberty, I was sort of like, especially when you're in the Jewish tradition, you know, the bat mitzvah is the beginning of your adulthood. I really saw that as just a huge moment in my life where I didn't look back after that. And I found, like I said, community with other women I've met who that was their gateway as well to horror. Specifically that book, that book, and then the whole series, and then just keep reading BC Andrews. And then it led me to the occult section even more. So I was able to look at just tons of other paperbacks and I found sort of a, a community in those books, right? It was a section that I could go to and really, I don't know, I just loved the stories. I, I mean, I know why now, because I've spent time looking at it. I don't know if I should go into like high school years now too. Um, should I? That's all we'll hold off on that. Cause yeah, we're, I, we're say, cause I could see there. a progression then. This was just right at the end of childhood though. And, and still always with the Shel Silverstein, it was just very, and I was always very interested in people hearing all the different scary stories people tell. I did not do a lot of the scary stories telling, which looking back is probably funny because I'm the one that writes about horror now, right? Not writes it. And I have no, I have no desire to write my own horror fiction. Unlike some people who I know who do what I do writing about it. I'm really interested in hearing other people's stories and thinking about them and, and putting them into classifications. And I loved, I was the one that you had a camp out. We had a sleepover. I would listen to all the scary stories. And as people (laughs) were getting like scared, I was like, no more. Come on, more. <laughs> like I was, I never really added to it, but I, I have lots of memories sitting in those sleepovers, or especially at like, um, I went to a day camp uh, every summer, and we would have a sleep out at the end of the summer. And I also went to, don't ask, but I was the Jewish girl at YMCA camp. That's a whole other side story. Um, but we would, t- we would tell lots of ghost stories at YMCA camp as well, the sleepover camp. I went for two weeks every summer, so I was always there taking them in. I just, mm-hmm. I never gave up. I was there till the fire went out. 
Yeah, I was going to say, when you said you were the one who, uh, you know, we were more interested in, I'm just picturing you with a bunch of campers around a campfire and everyone else is like either hiding in, in their hands or undercover. And you're the one leaning forward like, yes, yes more. Exactly. <laughs> I know every version of like, you know, every local legend of whatever ghost there is, because I've heard all of them. Something, something Jersey Devil. Yeah. Oh my mm-hmm. gosh, I love the Jersey Devil. It's a whole other thing too. <laughs> my daughter is 21 and she's obsessed with cryptids right now. And I'm like, okay. I'm so sorry <laughs> that you didn't get to spend all your time in New Jersey like I did. So. Um, I guess let's start with Flowers in the Attic. What did you like about Flowers, flowers in the Attic? You know, what I liked about it is, again, so it's what I like about horror in general, but I, I didn't know it then. I lived a very basic suburban you know, not that exciting, except for, you know, small instances of, of anti-Semitism that came up in my life, um, life in New Jersey. And I was also raised, my grandmother was a refugee from Europe. And so we were always very grateful for everything. And, and our life was fairly, I mean, my parents were both married. I had sisters, so our family was very close with each other. So my life was kind of boring. And I just was so intrigued by darkness and i didn't necessarily then love and i still don't really like high fantasy that's all very even the dark high fantasy i much prefer sort of one-offs with those too like a more neil gaiman as opposed to the whole world you have to follow i just like stories that felt like they could happen but were slightly askew but the gothic the the house the hidden secrets the illicit things that were happening the wow this stuff is really there what is it knowing though that safely it was not true but knowing that it was just off from what i knew and i really i really enjoyed that i mean it wasn't sheltered because i did live right near new york city and i spent a lot of time you know in the city and doing things and I knew that there was bad things out there, but not like this sort of hidden off in the woods. And I still really enjoy those slightly askew from reality. You go off into the woods where no one can see and then terrible things happen. Yeah. Supernatural or not. I think this was like my gateway, though, to that type of story. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. Like, you know, it's it's very easy to uh, get interested or, or, you know, get drawn into something like that when it is reality adjacent. Like, it's it's relatable, but. There's also this little bit of not so normal as well. Yeah. And that was what was so thrilling, right? Um, Mm -hmm. It's something I could read about. I could peek into it. It made me feel very uncomfortable, but not, it takes a lot to scare me. Obviously I've read a lot of things and Mm -hmm. I love books that make me while I'm reading them feel just completely out of sorts. I love to tell this story. It's just later when I was older, but this, there's a book called, by Jack Jemek called The Grip of It. And it's set near Chicago. And I love this book because it's about redoing a a house and it's either all in their heads or there's something terrible there. But the fact, when I review this book, I say to people like, it made me have to go outside and not be in a house because I felt like the house, my house was gonna get me. Um, And that's the kind of stories I like. Like I feel so uncomfortable. I have to like, I feel it off the page and it lingers with me. Was there something related to that with Shel Silverstein? I just loved thinking back about it, right? And I read them. I'm not a big rereader, and I read them over and over again. And I think, well, I first of all, I loved the way he used words. I think he just used words in a way I had never seen. You know, a lot of things for children are just bright and sunny and happy, and, and they rhyme in a sing-songy way. 
And he had, because I also had an audio cassette that I listened to, and he read them and his voice, if you have a chance to hear it, was just phenomenal. I think it's funny that I then moved to Chicago later and he's from here, but it was creepy, but yet still all fit together with rhymes. And they were story-based and they were character-based. And I'm a huge character reader. And when we talk about what I do as a reader's advisor, this will make more sense, but it was so character-based that I got sucked into each character. And then the fact that something really, again, just slightly askew, dark, creepy, something bad happens almost at the end of every single one of those (laughs) poems. And, um, or, or there's an impending, you know, where the sidewalk ends is an extremely dark story in a poem form for children. And I was encouraged to be obsessed with these. I bought them for my children when, as soon as they were born. So yeah, I think it's that just that slightly off something terrible is either going to happen or did, but they ended and then you moved on. Right. So Sylvia Stout gets totally covered by garbage uh, because she wouldn't take it out. And she was so stubborn that it fell on her and killed her. The end. Hey, that's dark. <laughs> but then you move on to the next one. Right. The whimsical drawings also, which mm-hmm. had that hint of darkness, if you go back and look at them, but yeah. weren't terrifying. That was always my favorite thing in Silver Silverstein, too. You, you almost had like the same, uh, I don't know, could it have been the same artist as Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark? Yeah, I don't think so. But those, I, that's what I loved about Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark as well. I'm just so glad that my children had access to things like graphic novels. And all of these things, because the the pictures going with a story are just, they just enhance the experience so much. Did you participate in Halloween? Oh my gosh, of course I participated in Halloween. (laughs) You'd be surprised. I was. So I lived in a very rural area of New Jersey. Well, that's not true. I lived in a pretty big town, but we lived sort of off the beaten path. And there was nowhere to trick or treat near my house. So we had to drive to go to a neighborhood where some of our friends lived and we would, we would trick or treat in that neighborhood, but no Halloween and Halloween was always my kids always trick or treated. I mean, yes. So for me, my, one of my, my aunt was an artist or is an artist. And one of my most vivid memories with my aunt in my life is she would make, she made me a costume one year and this costume, although it wasn't horror based, it was definitely um, a little on the creepier side, she made me a giant robot costume, hmm. but like okay. out of tin foil and cardboard. And, and here's the memory I have though. It's so vivid. I couldn't fit in the station wagon with it on. <laughs> and I was like, I have to wear it. I have to wear, it. I cannot not be wearing it the whole time. You know, obviously my mother was like, Becky, we can put it on every time we get out, when we get out of the car. And I, I was a very rational child as you probably are not surprised me being a librarian. And I was like, no, this costume is too perfect. So I have such a vivid memory of sitting in the 1980s station wagon, you know, in the back, in that full costume, barely able to fit in the station wagon. It was great. It was like the greatest Halloween ever. (laughs) But I'm also the parent who dressed my kids up. Like people were like, this is really dark. One year they were a zombie doctor. My husband's a doctor. A okay. zombie doctor and a zombie punk rocker. They're three years apart, girl and boy. <laughs> the boy was the doctor, the girl's punk rocker. And awesome. oh my God, I have the greatest pictures of them because they, oh, so much bad, like so much gory makeup on my children going to the, because awesome. the school allows 
they don't allow masks, but they don't care about makeup. <laughs> <laughs> like, okay. okay, so my kids can't wear masks. Okay, okay, okay. Can they look like, uh, you know, absolute Damn. grotesque Damn. horror shows? Flesh. Yeah. Yes. And both no my mask. kids in theaters, so I had access to theater makeup as well. <laughs> nice. Uh, well, that answers the favorite qu- costume question. How about least favorite costume? You know, one year my mom made me a little Bo Peep costume. I don't remember if I asked for it. I don't remember. But let let me tell you, my parents even did Halloween because I, one of my most vivid memories of my childhood is my mom. So I know I was six, almost seven. So I was like six months, but yeah, I was like, I was six and a half because my mom was pregnant with my sister and they went to a Halloween party every year. My mom, and it was a, you had to wear a mask to that party. Because it was like a like figuring out who was who, and my mom was pregnant with my sister, and so she was Miss Piggy, and I mm. thought like yeah, and she had the scary Miss Piggy mask, but um like it just looked like she looked so different. But so they also celebrated Halloween as well. Like it was it was a thing in our house. But yeah, the little Bo Peep was boring. <laughs> I only remember holding the like she made me a a bonnet. She wasn't a big sewer, but I think she was very excited to do this for me. And I had like a sheep stuffed animal and a cane. That's all I can remember. It was not as vivid as the robot costume. (laughs) (laughs) Boring to you. Exciting for her. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The next two questions I'm going to ask you at the same time, these are new to the, uh, to the format. So you wouldn't have heard these, but I'm going to ask you the same at the same time, because we're going to start with a negative one first and then end end on a positive. Okay, Uh, great. The negative one first is, do you remember the first person you hurt? The first person I heard, probably my sister. My, <laughs> it's I usually sister, a sibling. I mean, my sister and I are, I, so I, have three, I have two sisters. I'm the oldest. And I have a sister who's only um, 17 months younger than me. So we okay. really grew up together. And then there's a break of five years between the second and the third. So my sister and I are very much grew up. To, we were two years apart in school. We were always at odds. We are completely different people. But. We shared a room, even though we didn't have to. Like, like my dad's dream was always to have like two of the same sex children and have them share a room. He had an older brother, so I think that was you know part of it. And so we were constantly fighting each other, both physically and like verbally sparring with each other. And our friend group was exactly the same all summer mm. because it was a group you know within like two years, two or three years right. of school, and we all hung out together and we did swim team and we did day camp. And so we just were always together. And so there was this closeness and also this like viciousness that both happened. Right. So the inverse of that question, do you yeah. remember the first person you helped? It was my sister. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. It evens it out. I mean, definitely my sister. Um, because I, I, oh, I clearly remember being little and looking out for her. Mm. And like when we would go places. So again, a lot of my earliest memories deal with my synagogue culture growing up because it was such a big part of our life and i remember very vividly being in that daycare in the preschool room before she was probably old enough to go to the preschool and i went to the preschool and like making sure she was safe and making sure she had things to do and playing with her if no one was playing with her and of course it's going to go to reading there was this great reading nook in the in the preschool room and we would climb up and there was a slide to go down but i would always sit there and read with her and to her so yeah definitely my sister Did you have any scary dreams as a kid? All my nightmares ever have to do with anxiety. So uh, real world things that somehow go badly. I can't remember really details, but I did always have this sort of fear of things going wrong. I also had, when I was a kid, 
and this is another story that starts in the Poconos. My kids always make fun of me because I always bring it up, but I got kicked in the head when I was swimming and I came out and I was crying. My mom tells the story all the time and she's like, oh, you have a bump. You'll be fine. Well, the bump never went away. And so they didn't know, and it, it, it caused a lot of problems. Like I would get teased for it. And then they were worried that maybe I had cancer, which I did not know any of this. I was like eight. I was going to say, if you're getting teased for it, that was a hell of a bump. Right. It was, it was, it was like on my head. It was, you know, it was, yeah. Was it like well, a, it's so, you wouldn't even notice it. Oh no, it was right on my forehead. So yeah. Oh, okay. So anyway, but to make this very long story short, cause it took a while, but I didn't know at the time, but they thought I had cancer and it turned out I had a fractured skull and oh wow. Oh, wow. Yeah. But I, they wow. didn't know that and they removed the bump and I was fine, but I didn't know all this. So I, in that range, I had lots of nightmares that were sort of just general anxiety. And it was actually so bad. I had like, they thought I was getting an ulcer. Like I had a nervous stomach because every time I ate, I wanted to throw up. And I don't know how, like they didn't figure out that like not telling me what was happening was causing all this anxiety. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's gotta be a little nerve wracking, especially when you're a child so young and, and you're going to places like oncology offices and seeing people talking through throat vibrators. Like, why am I here? What is going on? And no one was telling me, right? And I was like, every couple weeks I had to go, and then I had to go to the hospital, whatever. The fact that it actually fractured your skull means that that was one hell of a kick. <laughs> what the hell? Yeah. yeah. So I still have a very small scar, but um, my grandmother was very vain, and so she paid for a fancy plastic surgeon to fix it. <laughs> <laughs> so my parents were like, well, if you're going to pay for it, it's fine with me. Right? Like, everyone yeah. else was covered by insurance because, you know, you had a fractured skull, but the, the plastic mm. surgeon. So, yeah. Um, yeah so. I normally would ask if there's anything in real life that terrified you, but I mean, this could qualify or is there something else that you'd like to give us? A response um, you to know, that? the thing that, that terrifies me the most is um, I'm, I'm a mother of a, of a 21 year old girl and an 18 year old boy and they're fantastic children. Something happening to them is my biggest fear is them. That gives me a lot of anxiety. Mm. I have put that as a fear for the adult section. What about uh, going back to childhood? Was there a fear for anything in real life that terrified you as a child or was the head kick enough? I definitely remember babysitting my sisters and being worried about where my parents were and when they were going to come home, things like that. So always, I think my fear of the people I love the most. Understandable. Yeah. Flipping that question around to the opposite. Do you remember a time in your childhood when you felt completely calm or safe or at bliss? Yeah, I think this is not going to come as a surprise because I became a librarian reading. I was, <laughs> I mean, I, I was the that, kind yes. of kid. I have vivid memories in my house, my the house I lived in for most of my childhood, sitting on the couch, st- staring at the backyard, reading. I also really liked the um, newer, that when I was a kid in the late 80s they, and early 90s, they redid the Nancy Drew books with like new covers and new, mm. more like modern Nancy Drew you know, a house with three sisters. It was not, it was not putting up with the patriarchy very much at our house. And, um, I loved, I would just sit and read the book and then like for the whole day and then start it over. But I do have an actual moment of bliss. So the, um, in New Jersey, we have County libraries. So mm-hmm. I happen to live in the County seat and many, many memories of my mom just leaving me there for the day by choice. <laughs> like, you know, she had other things to do with the other kids. I was big. I, I was a big softball player and swimmer but most of my back then kids didn't do sports necessary all year long i didn't do that till high school so most of my sports were in the summer when we lived in the poconos and i was on myself and i would ride my bike and, and play so i didn't have sports really on the weekends um i did swimming during the week and she would leave me there 
my sisters had things to do. I mean, three girls, there's a lot going on. And um, I had the Hunterdon County Library and I, hours, and I remember being left there and, you know, we didn't have phones or anything. This was like, mm-hmm. you know, the late eighties. And I would go to the children's section. I remember it vividly, but I also remember the fact that nobody cared if I wandered around and I would go into the adult section and just yeah. pull books off the shelf and look at them for fun. And I remember asking one year, so we celebrate, my mom is not Jewish, so we celebrated Christmas and Hanukkah, but we got books for Hanukkah. And I remember asking for this book. It was a book that led you to a, it was a scavenger hunt in the library book. So like it gave you um, things to do. So I would like, it would like tell you to go to it. It's where I learned about like that, like the Dewey numbers, all the books in that area are like similar topics, right? Mm-hmm. So I would like follow the things for fun, like, and go see what books I could find. And I was big on just pulling a book that looked interesting off the shelf and looking at it for hours. Mm-hmm. Some of my most vivid memories, I can picture the Hunterdon County Library, like every nook and cranny of it. Back then, I'm sure it's been renovated. Right. Was there anybody in your family when you were a kid who was a fan of horror? Yeah, my dad. He loved Stephen King. My dad loved Stephen King. He was the guy that when the um, when the full complete version of the stand came out, you know, the 1500 page version. He brought that to the beach to read because he came up to visit us on the weekends and uh, we would go to the lake and he would, he would read. And he was literally sitting on the beach in a beach chair with that. And he reads, he reads a lot of horror still. He reads a lot also across genres. Actually, I got him into S.A. Cosby this year. So, and uh, he was a big horror reader. And he did say though, and one vivid story I remember he would be alone in the summers at the house and he had to be careful when he read at home because he remembers reading Cujo and not sleeping for three nights because nobody was home. <laughs> so, uh, that Again, was that's another one of those that's kind of like relatable to real life and just a little bit of horror, you know? Well, a lot of exactly, horror. Exactly, and he is a dog person. We did not have dogs oh. when we were growing up. Uh, I was fairly allergic, but they, he had dog when he was a kid and he had dogs when I left home. So yeah, it was, yeah. So, but like we watched, you know, I watched the ex, not the exorcist maybe with him, but, um, I, I, Oh, I know close encounters. That was a scary movie for mm. me as a kid and how like that movie entranced me. So what, what fascinated you about that? That I can always, the, the TV scene, you know, which one, um, the, where the guy comes out, the thing comes out of the TV to get the girl. Wasn't like that close, close encounters? encounters or poltergeist? Oh, wait, that was poltergeist. I am yeah. totally wrong. Sorry. <laughs> I'm doing both. Like, my similar, mom you know. liked close encounters with the with the aliens and all that. Sorry, poltergeist. Mm-hmm. That was the one I liked. And my mom liked close okay. encounters. My mom's more of a science fiction person, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. She's big into science fiction and fantasy. So yes, so close mm-hmm. encounters I did with the with the spaceship, but the poltergeist yes. with the with oh my god, I can't get that out of my mind. And I but I would like it would freak me out and then I would like watch it again when it was on. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> also being the oldest and not having my dad around, like I got left alone with the TV a ton. <laughs> my mom was like i'm going to bed i'm exhausted my grandmother helped out in the summers with us but like she's like i'm exhausted you know i have like you're 13 but i have like a six-year-old right so <laughs> so yeah and then yeah my mom loved close encounters so i would watch that with her but i loved poltergeist when it was on and also you know i always think it's very fitting that jaws came out like 10 days before i was born so mm-hmm. The one question for childhood I had forgotten to ask. I wanted to. Uh, yeah. So a so number of our our guests have reported like a dividing line where before this dividing line they were afraid of horror and after it they were they enjoyed it. Was there a dividing line for you or was it always pleasure? I think it was always pleasure. Isn't that weird? Yeah. Not really. No. Yeah. And that's uh, 
that that question popped up in my head too, Steve. Uh, especially when you mentioned Poltergeist, how you you went back to it. Like it oh my gosh, you, every time it was on, watch it again. <laughs> every time, was, every time it was on. I now was it is tradition. <laughs> in in your case, because your father was a fan of horror, that mm-hmm. possibly may have mm-hmm. been related. There were there have been situations been where, influence, yeah. well. You know, memories only go back so far. And if you've got somebody mm-hmm. who's been a fan of it, who was a family member, particularly a close one, like a parent, there are, it's possible that you may have picked up something from them without even remembering it because it predates your memory. Yeah. So yeah. moving into teenage years, what are yeah. some of your favorite books or movies or stories from teenage years that impacted you? I do remember watching Pet Cemetery at a sleepover party and everybody freaking out. It was in ninth grade. I also, my teenage years, so eighth grade is such a dividing mark for me because we moved for family reasons that didn't involve me, but I got brought along. (coughs) Excuse me. And I went from public school to private school and we moved far away from all my friends and I started high school. So it's a very big dividing line in my life in general. And I also got I, I, you know, I'm a librarian. This should not come as a surprise. I love school. I love school. I am not one of those people that didn't like school. I love learning, especially my English classes. And I think maybe precisely because I went to a smaller, from a huge public school to a smaller private school, the literature we got to read was different than other kids. So I remember, like, I remember in ninth grade, other kids, other schools, my kids read like Romeo and Juliet and we read Macbeth and we talked about the ghosts and the horror. And I was just like, this is awesome. <laughs> and then in 10th grade, we had American Lit. And I clearly remember discovering Edgar Allan Poe in that class. And <laughs> that was just the end. Like I was like in heaven. And we, you know, we read The Raven, but we had to recite Annabelle Lee. And that poem is really creepy, right? I mean, Annabelle Lee, Annabelle Lee. Yeah. So it's his dead girlfriend, basically. And he's writing an ode to her. And so the big thing about 10th grade is, which is something I really, really um, remember vividly. So we read, we, I said, we talked about Shirley Jackson all day. We read the lottery, which, you know, is one of those experiences that you can never replicate, right? Mm. You read the lottery and you are forever changed. And if you aren't, then I don't, I don't know if I want to talk to you. Right. <laughs> I mean, it's just one of the best short stories ever written. I remember giving it to my daughter. Uh, We've always lived in the castle is still her absolute favorite book. But Shirley Jackson just just captivated me. And again, I don't know if other kids in, you know, 1991 were reading Shirley Jackson in school, but I did go to at a fairly like very leftist English teacher, you know, who was very much about doing whatever she wants. I mean, read The Bluest Eye in 10th grade in the 90s. And again, Toni Morrison was teaching it at Princeton, so it wasn't that weird. But I remember vividly the horror of that story. I hadn't read Beloved yet. We read that in 12th grade. And writing an essay about this, so this is a memory I have about understanding how, and I have blue eyes. So reading that story, The Bluest Eye, about this young Black girl's hate for herself, her self-hate, because she doesn't have blue eyes and she's, and, and I don't want to give away the whole story, but she's terribly abused and there's a lot of stuff going on. And I wrote this essay about it. I just felt so much for her, her pain and the horror of the situation and how horrible it was and how she couldn't get out of the cycle. And I remember writing an essay, and this goes back to me being like a really, really loving school. And I remember the English teacher, Mrs. Ripton, asking me to stay after. And I was like, oh crap, what did I do wrong? <laughs> right. Cause I never got in trouble like ever. 
And um, it drove my sister insane because she was always getting in trouble, you know. So, and we went to the same very small prep school two years apart. So it was a whole thing. And I was like, oh, no, no. And then she pulled me aside to tell me, and this is, this has been a, why I think I pursued writing so much. She told me it was one of the best essays she ever read and she wanted my permission to use it in the future. And it just felt that was one of the first times I was also like really told that I could be a writer. And that really pulled me forward. So then going into that year, we had to, we could write about anything we wanted for our research paper for the end of 10th grade. And so I, we had studied Henry James and I wrote about the turn of the screw. And again, slightly askew, you know, looking back, right? Seems like it's the real world, but it's definitely not. And I wrote a whole entire 20 page research paper on the turn of the screw. And um, I, so it just, it just kept progressing as I found things that I really loved and intrigued me that were really just creepy. And, and it kept going. What was askew about turn of the screw? Well, because it's, you know, is this just all real? It's, it's, it's psychological suspense. So mm-hmm. is all of this real? Is it in the person's mind? Is there something else at work here? What is going on? And it's all about just anxiety and, and discomfort, the whole story. Okay. I can see how that might be uh, relevant to someone who has anxiety. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Let's see. The bluest die. I'm not. Oh, actually, you talked about that about the uh, the blue eyes. What about? Yeah, Baldur? that's like real world horror. But you know, it's that empathy with the horrors that happen. People growing up in situations I can't even imagine that are just absolutely horrific with with no way out. And you know, in the as I moved on in my life, I now do um, a very popular series of um, anti racist training for librarians with my mm-hmm. black colleague Robin Bradford, and we. Mm-hmm. We play off of our um, marginalized experiences, me as Jew and her as a black woman. And we talk a lot about, especially because librarianship is mostly white women. And we talk Mm -hmm. a lot to them about trying to understand coming from a marginalized perspective and the horror implicit in that, that you have every day. That's a book I just come back to in my brain is sort of starting my journey of thinking about these things. And I made a lot of connections to um, some of my experience because when we moved to Northern Jersey, we lost our, our Jewish community. That was just a huge part of my life. It was, it was our social community. It was our, it was everything. We did everything. And, um, I moved to an area where we didn't have that community as much. So I was also feeling some of that at the same time, losing that community and all those people that I literally grown up with my whole life. Mm. That goes back to what we said before we started, uh, the episode about, you know, my family in Chicago. I, I can relate to that. Yeah. Beloved. You mentioned that. I mean, I think it's one of the greatest horror novels ever written, right? I'm not familiar with it, so tell me about it. Oh my gosh. So Beloved by Toni Morrison is just, it is a story about the the psychological trauma of slavery. And there are really real ghosts in it. And terrible things happen. I do not want to give it away to people who have not read it. But if you go look up like greatest horror novels ever, it shows up on a lot of lists. And I got to read it in high school and then in uh, senior and first semester in college. Thankfully, you know, my children got to read it in high school, both of them, I think, I'm trying to remember which class, uh, but it is required. Oh, I think it's 11th grade AP English. It's a required book. Hmm. It is the story of a woman who is quote unquote escapes to freedom, but you can never escape the trauma that you've lived hmm. through. And some of her trauma has to do with uh, the death of her child. I'm trying, I'm purposely trying not to give things away. <laughs> um, and the ghosts of that haunt her literally for her whole life and the choices she makes. And it's just, it's just a stunning work of 
of horror. It really is. And it's, I think, the book that pushed her over to winning the, the Nobel Prize. So, in my opinion. Somebody uh, could probably send that to DeSantis. I mean, I didn't want to say it, but one of you is in Florida. So. I mean, it is a book that I don't know how you can read it and not understand the, the, I think the, he understands quite well, but the well, yeah, the con- the, and not understand how much everyone yeah. who lives. I, I was an American studies major in college as well, so that involved Black history courses, of course, because you can't be an American studies major without that, and you can't be you can't understand America without understanding the trauma of slavery. And I know I feel that very much as a Jewish person. It's very hard to live this as a descendant of someone who was forced to flee their country because of the Holocaust. It, it surrounded everything I grew up with and everything I you know, know, and that trauma stays. It's, it's this past year, uh, for the last year and a half, my uh, children and I have gone through a process of, and, and this has taught me so much about what we do wrong in America. We received from the country of Austria this is a, this is a national law. We received Holocaust refugee reparations citizenship, and literally received a letter from the mayor of Vienna, the, the where my grandmother grew up, thanking us for coming back and trusting them, and how sorry they are for everything they did to us. And we've been taught. I mean, we went back this for New Year's this last year as a family. Um, we have EU passports now. It's it's been a process, and it was a lot of emotions. And I've written about this on my blog, my regular blog, but it makes me understand how horrific it, uh, it is that we have done nothing for reparations in this country mm. for 400 years of what we did to people. So when I read those stories of like a story like Beloved, I, I have a connection and understanding that there is psychological trauma and things that are generational trauma that just don't go away. Uh, we had family members who died and didn't get out. And there was guilt growing up with my great grandfather, who I knew very well, um, that he didn't get his sister out in time, mm. that she didn't believe him and he didn't force her out. Like he didn't, because again, in my family, we, we respect women. <laughs> and he's like, I should have forced her. I should have dragged her out. And she just did. She put her feet down and said, this is my home. I'm not leaving. And he, we grew up with, with that trauma. Only one of her children made it out. So it's, it's something that underlies everything. Mm-hmm. This might be a good moment to say this. Uh, a previous interview, we interviewed Sarah Niedorf, who is a Jewish woman also living in Germany, as a matter of fact, right now. She grew up in the Philadelphia, New Jersey area. And she talked about generational trauma and the conversation I just was going in a particular direction and I didn't say it. But at the time I was thinking about how, and I think Chris mentioned this uh, at the moment too, about uh, both she and Chris talked about generational trauma and coming from a, a recovery background as I do you know, mm-hmm. the book that I wrote is about the, the tools that I rec- learned through the recovery process. And I don't talk about this in the book because it's a, it's a bit of a deeper topic, but beliefs are very important in terms of how we look at the the world and how we react to the world. And it's those beliefs that often are handed down from one generation to the next. And I think that's really the underlying aspect when it comes to generation generational trauma is that it's the lessons that we learn. And, you know, we talk about as teachers, uh, you know, there's teachable moments. And when you have a teachable moment, you can either learn the right lesson from something or you can learn the wrong lesson from something. And there are multiple wrong lessons that can be learned from different things. And Mm -hmm. 
it, those wrong lessons then sometimes underscore a particular belief that may not actually be the best or the most accurate or healthiest thing to take away from a particular situation. And those, the, I, at least my personal take on it is that this generational trauma that we speak of really goes back to lessons that are learned from traumatic experiences that though may be accurate for the particular moment aren't necessarily the best in terms of being the healthiest or the best way to approach life from that point forward. You know, there's, there's a lot of, you know, the Indian term karma refers to not so much what you put out into the world and what comes back to you, but about our own internal biases that then color how we act and how that then in turn brings back things to us that are not, 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 not always healthy. And so there's this, this huge onion, shall we say, of having to peel back the layers of what happened to me? What did I learn from it? How do I, what am I, are my beliefs associated with that? And is that good for me? And in what situations? And it's this whole difficult thing that is much more than we can talk about in this podcast, obviously, <laughs> but, the fact that you brought it up again, I think it was important to say it because like I said, I didn't get a chance to say it in the interview with Sarah. So um, I don't know. I'm going to tell you this that. too. I, I talk about this in my training I do with my colleague, Robin Bradford, who also is the romance specialist for uh, the American <laughs> Library Association. So we, and we talk about how they're emotion driven genres, the two of us. Anyway, that's a whole other story, but we talk about this and her and I say, you know, as she says, as a black woman, and I say, as a Jewish woman, like, she's like, I don't only want to read books about slavery, uh, trauma porn, we call it, right? And I hate, 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 hate that almost all the popular stories and all the stories that get published that are Jewish have to do with the Holocaust, right? All these mm. popular stories. And don't even get me started on the books that are like the reformed Nazi who gets Can't to be we like, also loved. Be happy? Yeah, I can't, <laughs> right? I can't. So, but we don't want to just read books that are about that, about the trauma. You know, we are... We are people with, with many interests. And we talk about this a lot when we tell people like we're not, do not just go toward the trauma stories. There are, we are full people with stories that are not, it's just so hard. Mm. Um, well, even if you go back, especially because I'm not going to talk about her experience, but you know, in, in Hebrew school, we don't just learn. It's not like going to CCD and just learning the religion. Like they give you ethnic training as well in Hebrew school. So we learn about being Jewish in the world. And, and our story is one of trauma over many centuries. So, and it doesn't help living in the world right now. And you know, the rise of anti-Semitism and the okay of it. And I'm in the library world where I'm literally fighting with libraries who say, but I have to let the Holocaust deniers in the building because free speech. And I'm like, no, yeah. you don't because it's hate <laughs> speech. So like, there's yeah. a whole nother thing. Like I've gotten into actual fights with like librarians about this, like high up people. People can go to RA for all and search the word Nazi and they will find a post about <laughs> it that I wrote yeah. in July of 2023. So. Uh, yes, that's like I said, that's, that is a whole other conversation. So. Uh, Point not, of fact, before we move too... on to the next one, uh, mm -hmm. there are some good Jewish tales. You know, a, a fiddler on the roof was uh, was fairly upbeat. <laughs> no, and it's actually the most part of it. Right, it's not just about. I'm, <laughs> I'm talking more about contemporary. It's there's there's wonderful books about um, that center Jewish people, but the problem is, and if anyone wants to read this, it's sort of horrific. It's a nonfiction book called "People Love Dead Jews" by the novelist Dara Horn H O R N, who's a famous title. <laughs> People love dead Jews. Um, and it's, it's Darhorn is a famous, um, she's like mid list, but very award-winning, uh, fiction writer 
who does write great books with a Jewish centering, a Jewish experience without being about trauma. But this whole book, it will open your eyes. It opened my eyes. And just the first essay about a modification of Anne Frank and her and her hmm. her life as like the the model Jew. It's it's interesting. It's a, it's a, it's lots of essays about people are fine with dead Jews, but you know it's the living ones that are problematic to them. That does sound like an interesting read. It's a great book. It's one of it won some awards too. Yeah, that's um, I don't even know what to what to say to that at the moment. It's, I mean, that's a whole other kind of horror. So, yeah, there yeah, there are multiple there are multiple podcasts about that. Um, yes, <laughs> but it's I think it's important in terms of if we're talking about the psychology of horror, like that frames yes. you know growing up Jewish in the eighties and nineties that frames my experience with a grandmother very close to my grandmother who yes. who lived these things. So. You know, kind of jumping ahead of ourselves, but obviously at a certain point in the call, we will come back and touch on the things that are important to you. Obviously, this is important to you for a very good reason. You know, there's there's a balance to be struck between how deeply we delve into a particular issue compared with the runtime of our episodes. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have had some that have run four hour long episodes that we then have to edit back to an hour, hour, hour and a half to to release. And as I say, when I kind of jokingly, glibly talking about how it could be an entire podcast talking about the Jewish experience, and I'm, I'm not trying to make light of it, but at the same time, there's also that the the question of how deeply do we delve into that? You can or just that, transition. It's fine with me. Well, I, what I was thinking about is that quote of, um, oh, crap, I can't remember the exact quote or the name of the person who, who said it, but now, but you know, the you know, what is the purpose of art after the Holocaust? Like, yeah. what can you talk about? That is a whole thing. Um, and like you say, we could transition. I don't, I want to, but I don't want to at the same time because I don't want to minimize it either. Well, I think we transition by saying, you know, that is something that's foundational to me growing up that might not be to other people who are listening. You know, you grow up with these stories. You, But at the same time, might uh, yeah. also be, why, which is why it's important to talk about it. So. Right. So, yeah. I mean, but like you said, it's a whole nother podcast, I think. Mm. So, moving on. <laughs> I think that's our transition. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah a whole I really podcast. do. I think it's, I think it's just a foundation and it's important to understand. Yes. And it, it brings me, you talked about like, I can't transition here because you talked about like, is there a point at which you could see your horror starting, right? I remember the exact phrasing of your question, but I guess it's not just that my dad was reading horror. It was like, it was sort of just part of who we were as a family. And we were very lucky. And I did, I grew up with w- wanting for nothing, but we, but it doesn't matter. Right. Cause that was foundational to how well, another, we another here. way to look at it too, is that, you know, having talked to, we're now closing in on a hundred episodes and starting to see patterns about how people transition through life. And one of the things that we have seen in the past is that, you know, for some people that are fans of horror from, from the jump and they, it never leaves their lives. And some, some people they were a fan and then they kind of move into other things into their teenage years and come back to horror in their adult years. And I could also see how particularly in this situation with, uh, you know, the, the background that particularly the teen years, I could see being a, a, a time to delve into the, the background of the Holocaust and stuff like that, because you maybe don't, necessarily want to really shove a kid into that in their early years because that could be you know traumatic in a bad way and then there's experience an experience of digging into into the teen years where you're now ready for some of that 
and then also maybe needing to also take a little bit of a step back because how much of your life do you want to devote to letting this rule your life? You know what I mean? Yeah, it's a, it's a fine line. So, in, and you're absolutely right because although I grew up knowing this my whole life, um, we did not, we are a family that talks about everything. And I knew, you know, how our family got to America and why, but in your, when you're going through, um, your training for your bat mitzvah, you have to write a speech. And, and I was very close to my grandmother. So I wrote a speech about her and about her being my age when she came to America and how different our lives were. So yeah, I think it does. And, but then, yes, you want to, you want to move away from it. You don't want to focus on it your whole life. And I definitely do not, but it, you can't get away from, from that knowledge and knowing it. And it does inform everything that comes after. Hmm. So Halloween. <laughs> yeah. <Not> Halloween. <laughs> Favorite costume during uh, teenagers. Favorite costume during teenage years. And that's interesting because I was one of those, because I changed schools and we changed our community. I found a group of friends in my high school years. We didn't dress up. We did mischief nights. Yes. Yeah. So we had, and and we were, (laughs) we were good kids. And so we got permission to go to this one girl's house who lived on the street and we had silly string and toilet paper. And we just went bonkers for the whole night and then had a sleepover and ate candy. We didn't go trick or treating, but like the, the mom would buy us candy. I think all the moms pitched in and, and we, wa- we watched scary movies and told scary stories. And so those are my most vivid memories in high school are mischief night. Every year it was marked off on our calendar. Yeah. So the 30th of October, and I was a big, sp- I played three sports in high school and, and I was a uh, soccer was then in the fall and I was a starter and everything. So if there was a game on the 31st, I was tired. <laughs> and it didn't matter what day of the week it was and our parents our parents let us do it no matter what day of the week it was and they knew it was important to us and they knew that we were good kids so and i think the mom of the girls her name was danielle and she was a year below me i think the mom told everybody on the block that it was going to happen <laughs> like looking back prepare well, that, your houses that, yeah. that just removes the fun from it how well, you know, I don't they know see that it now. coming like i know that now like i didn't know that then <laughs> oh okay like i they kept it from us but they were yes. so willing to let us do all of this right <laughs> park your cars in the garage you know and yeah. we just and we just had and we did not like do eggs we literally did silly string and toilet paper we oh, were yeah. good good kids and you know we had our babysitting money so we could afford to buy that was one of the nice things about <laughs> changing to a prep school we had K through 12. So, and my sister was little again. She was a lot. So I had so many babysitting opportunities. <laughs> so we had our babysitting money and that worked out really well. <laughs> uh, anything in real life terrify you as a teen? In real life, terrifying me as a teen. Again, the safety of my family, the unknown, like, you know, I, I chose to go off to college um, away from home four hours away. I definitely was a little nervous about that, but no, I, I, same things like something happening to my friends or family has always been, I mean, it terrified me. And I was very lucky. You know, my children were not as lucky. Um, they lost their very close grandparents when they were in middle school and high school. I had, when I got married at 23, all seven of eight grandparents between the two of us were alive. And my grandfather died when I was um, six months old. So like, I, um, I did not have a lot of death and things or bad things happening in my family growing up. But I definitely always, always afraid something was going to happen to the people I loved because we were a very close family. Flipping that question around, was there a time in your teens where you felt completely calm or sorry for your place? Reading? Yeah. I, I, <laughs> I, I, no, not just reading. Because I think I have less memories of reading 
for fun in high school. I have a best friend who's still my best friend. She just visited. She still lives in New Jersey. She just visited last weekend when we're recording this. She was a year ahead of me in high school. We met at soccer camp. She was a sophomore. I was a freshman and she was brand new. She had transitioned from uh, public school to the private school and the times we spent together. And I mean, and this is again, stereotypical New Jersey. We'd go to the Bridgewater mall or we'd go in the summers. Um, Cause in the summers I did not keep going to the Poconos. I'd stay home and work. I was a day camp counselor. Uh, we went to seaside Heights yep. and we went to the, we went to the boardwalk and we still find great joy going to the boardwalk. We've taken family vacations to Wildwood, New Jersey together with our kids our kids are like cousins to each other. They're all about the same age. Just last summer I visited and we spent the day at uh, at the boardwalk at Point Pleasant. She lives in, in near Point Pleasant now and they went to Asbury Park another day. My Twitter bio says I'm a Jersey girl in exile. I mean, that is my happy place, New Jersey. <laughs> it's every time we're there. I just, I love everything. The, the that Bridgewater Mall, like I said, and, and yeah, and Seaside Heights. Seaside Heights, New Jersey, going to the, to the boardwalk and just being there and just having the most fun, the two of us, just going there to spend the night. We would drive, we'd spend, you know, do everything, leave when the boardwalk closed at 11, be home by midnight. I do miss that. I miss living sort of in the middle of the country without that, going to be able to go to the shore just on a whim. I can relate. Yeah. Best, uh, best relation in my life started at the Jersey Shore. <laughs> there you go. Moving into adult years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I understand that there's probably a lot on the list. Yeah. And we <laughs> can, we can as a keep, it, keep it simple. Well, it, from the psychology side standpoint, yeah. normally the top two or three things that come to mind come to mind for a reason. So if we were to say favorite movies or stories or books in your adult years, what are the first mm-hmm. things that come to mind? You know, it's the same exact thing. So um, I, I know you were going to ask about movies and I was thinking kind of recently well, first of all, last year I was physically angry and would yell at every single person who would listen that Nope was not nominated for an Oscar because that movie was amazing. And as a librarian who studies genre literature, the fact that it had tropes of the Western and horror, right? It was just, it was so great a movie. But recently, I think one of the most perfect movies that has come out that I just can't, I've watched more than once and, I, and I'm not a big rewatcher is, is Parasite. Uh, again, sort of like the lottery, you can never watch that movie again for the first time. And I do not want to ruin it for people. It's also like the uh, Kashi Ishiguro book, Never Let You Go, which is also like a Shirley Jackson moment. And I, I don't want to ruin Parasite. But as somebody who really enjoys psychological suspense very much and the feelings that it gives, that movie is just, it, it's near perfect. Just the fact that that movie has you so tense. And just as you're starting to relax a little, there's this moment where the family is all together in the house and they seem happy and everything's going well and the doorbell rings. Mm. And it's like a whole nother movie after that. I just mm-hmm. found that fascinating as somebody whose job it is to write about literature and storytelling. I was just totally intrigued by it. I like the doorbell ringing as a symbolic thing. Oh yeah. Right? It's at the exact <laughs> middle moment, which I didn't even realize until later until someone told me. And the feelings that movie gives you. And also, you know, the, the ending, I don't want to give it away, but it ends poorly. Like, it's not a happy ending. And that's some of my favorite no. horror stories are, like, everybody dies. Like, <laughs> Well, yeah. I, I mean, you read Macbeth as a, yeah. in, in high school, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But, like, um, you know, The Only Good Indians is my favorite going to books, is my favorite book by Stephen Graham Jones of the la- of since 2000. It used to be The Ruins. But if you, by Scott Smith, but if you understand those two books, they sort of end very similarly. Although Stephen Graham Jones, and this is why I think I also like Paul Tremblay a lot, 
they they terrible terrible things happen mm. but there is a hope at the end of the stories that is not terrible things can happen and there can still be hope and if you've seen uh knock at the cabin the movie please go read the book cabin at the end of the world because the story is completely different and even though the book book, cabin at the end of the world was also one of my favorite books i i tell people to read them like this book will break you but you will be glad you read it and that's what i feel about that book um and then you know the only good indians i publish a list of my favorite horror book of the year every year and i work on a top 10 list for library journal and i do another one on twitter for librarians and I finished the book in October, November of 2019. And the first thing I did was not text Stephen Graham Jones. I texted Paul Tremblay and I said, hey, just writing to you to tell you you're not going to have the book of the year this year. And I hadn't read Survivor (laughs) Song yet. And he wrote back and he went, you just read The Only Good Indians, didn't you? And he said, (laughs) I said, yeah. And he said, I'm in the middle of it. And I was like, (laughs) I "I agree. (laughs) And it was, it was. It will, you will never be able to look at a ceiling fan the same way again. There are, if you have a problem with animals dying, don't read this book. There are super bloody scenes, but it also has one of the most beautiful and hopeful endings of a book. And somehow basketball is involved and it doesn't feel like it was forced. <laughs> it was just, it, and, and, I, and I am always so proud of all the awards it's won. And I do a lot of work with, with Stephen Graham Jones. I just did his book launch for Barnes & Noble last year for um, Don't Fear the Reaper. Let me, let me stop yeah. you for a moment. Because a lot of the things that you're saying are like pictures on the wall, but what are your emotions about the pictures on the wall? Oh, sure. One of the things I love about The Only Good Indians, the story. Well, so with Parasite, let's go back for a second. I love sure. the that it looks deeply at how horrible class divide is, right? And how you can be somewhere with the haves and the have-nots. And it's it's clearly, it's very, very obvious in this movie that that's what it's about. And how we just ignore class divide so much. And how there's so much horror implicit in that. But with The Only Good Indians, I love how Stephen Graham Jones writes from a place of being a proud Native American. But he's not writing about, in this story, he's writing about the, the rules within his own community. And the fact that these four young men, it's not about what the white people did to us, right? This is about their community. Mm. And the breaking the rules by as young men, they went on a hunt and they went out of turn. They went to kill elk when it was not their turn to hunt. It was the elders turn to hunt. And then they, on top of that, not only did they kill an elk, they killed a pregnant elk Mm. and they went on with their lives. And then there is the stuff about the assimilation because some of them assimilated, some of them, you know, didn't and um, where they went as adults and separated. And then the elk woman comes back to get them. So it is both a story of, the horror of breaking the own rules in your community. But there's also this implicit story about being a Native American in America today and the horror of that that's on the outskirts of it all. And again, as a Jewish person, I understand this. The Do you assimilate? Do you stay within your community? What does that mean when you do those things? And I think that when I mentioned Cabin at the Underworld does something very similar. And Paul Tremblay is very clear about it being like a reaction to Trump. But like the family that's going to save the world are you know, gay fathers and their quote unquote damaged adopted daughter because it's very, she has a cleft palate and they talk about that. And my best friend's son actually had a cleft palate. So I had a lot of connection to that. And they're the family that's going to save the world. And are these people coming harbingers of the apocalypse, as they say, like you, the family, you can save the world and stop the apocalypse, or are they just making it up? And that, that dichotomy between the real world horror and the supernatural horror is, is again, something I've turned to 
all of the time. Same thing with my favorite book last year. No one was happier than me that uh, The Devil Takes You Home by Gabino Iglesias has won all these awards this year because I was one of the earliest proponents of that book as well. And it's again, the horror of the real world of poverty and being brown in America and being an immigrant has some of the most brutal language you will ever read in a book and also some of the most beautiful language. These, you know, you can live in a world where you punch racists, where your daughter dies of cancer and you're in debt because you can't pay the bills and the drug cartels have taken everything from the people around you. But you can also be driving across this beautiful landscape, right? That is just sunsets and vistas. And you have to take a moment and appreciate that as well. And none of these stories end well, I will say, for the characters. That's something that's come up a few times. What do you like about that? I, again, I think people read for escape and people read, um, my life pretty much goes pretty well. I mean, we've had, you know, my, my husband lost both of his parents, um, during my kids, you know, childhood terribly to, to disease, to ALS and cancer, which are not fun, either of them. You know, we've lived through a pandemic very closely with my husband being a family doctor and being on the front lines and being, um, hospitalized with COVID weeks before he was supposed to get a vaccine and all this stuff. So you know, I don't get my life is perfectly rosy and perfect, but overall it's pretty good. And I'm aware of that. And I make sure my children are aware of that. But this idea of reading about and experiencing things that are so different from what I see. And I also know that the world is not fair. Again, growing up with this background as a Holocaust refugee family and knowing that there's evil out there, it's just realistic. You know, the world is not, reality is hard. And um, life is not going to go the way you think it is, and whether personally or in the world, and you can't control everything. Um, but in these stories, you can read about it in a way that is illicit and unsettling. But then you close the book, and everything, and I talk about this all the time, you know, it's not as bad as your real life. You can go back yeah. and tackle the real things if these characters do. And yes, even if they all die, you know, it's like that whole mm. thing. Well, I would have done things differently, right? Like the, the ruins I mentioned by Scott Smith. Like, don't go up on that hill. Right? <laughs> <laughs> don't. When the I'm, indigenous people are telling you, yes. "Do not touch the plant," maybe don't touch the plant. Oh <laughs> just, just a thought. Yeah. Let's jump past a couple of the questions that we normally would ask here, because I think some of these would just be uh, repetitive. The next kind of questions would go over your entire life, not necessarily referring to horror. And I'm going to give the two at the same time because it could be the same answer or different answers. And we'll accept both movies or books since you're also into literary. But if we were to ask, what is your favorite movie and what movie have you watched more times than any other? Yeah. So um, what movie I've watched more times than any other shows that I'm a that I'm a kid of the Brat Pack years. It's, it's so silly. It's Young Guns 2. I was obsessed <laughs> with that movie. I loved it. <laughs> I had such a crush on Emilio Estevez. I, and, and then wait, I get, I'm from New Jersey and my husband and I always joke about this because he's from New Jersey as well. And we have a divide. He is Bruce Springsteen and I am Bon Jovi. Um, I mean, when I was a teenager, Bon Jovi came out with an album called New Jersey. I had one of those black, and maybe you were the same age, like those black silk screen, like poster things. Mm. <laughs> that was like a picture of the band. I was totally into hair bands and I loved Bon Jovi. And so John Bon Jovi did the song for Young Guns too. And so right. I just watched that movie over and over and over again and again ends with the character dying so you oh. know maybe there's a connection there billy the kid yeah. dies in that one so young guns 2 was the one she watched more times than any other what would you say is your favorite so i it wally huh? the, the really? Pixar movie i okay. just yeah again super unsettling um it's science fiction it's dystopian i just i when asked that question i go back it's just i think it's just 
a really perfect movie. Okay. It really assesses, again, American studies major, it assesses mm. human society and where we're going and what would happen to us if we made certain choices and what yeah. matters most. The meal in a cup thing is is really oh, uh, a message, a you know, it's like it's dystopian utopian. It's like, well, see, and I hate it because I'm a foodie and I love food, like the texture <laughs> and the trying yes. different things. And the, mm-hmm. Going yeah. back to the, the meal in the matrix. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so do you see any common threads about what kind of horror you like? Cannibalism, occult, metaphysical, supernatural? I really enjoy. I really like haunted house stories. Hmm. Mm-hmm. I very much enjoy. I enjoy revenge horror quite a bit. <laughs> okay. I, I'm starting to like cosmic horror more. Mm. Uh, I think it was a little too bleak for me at times, but I'm, I'm great. I, what I love about horror and I look at the books I give stars to, I appreciate every detail matters. I appreciate stories that create a world and characters. I am very character driven as a reader. Mm. And then place becomes probably second most important. Obviously the first thing is the atmosphere, right? I love a book that sets an unsettling atmosphere from the first page. I note the beginning when I read the book, like how did it set up the fear and anxiety? And then I have to care about the characters, both the the good and the bad characters. Mm-hmm. I need to care about, I don't need to care about the monster and that I like the monster, but I need to feel that it's, it's truly terrifying. Whatever that supernatural force is, whatever that. Can I, can I stop you for a moment? Yeah. Knowing that we're short on time with the headset. What you're referring to here, it strikes me as being more auteur versus emotional and wanting to be grabbed and hooked and, and have that maintained. Yes, that's true as an auteur, but the emotion of what's being attained. Do you understand what I'm saying? Oh, so you want me to talk about that more? So yeah, so I need to keep, I need to feel the fear with all of my senses. Mm -hmm. And that's what I mean, like with details, right? And I need to know that something, I think a really great example is a recent book is Looking Glass Sound um, by Katriana Ward. And a bunch of people are like, texting me while they're reading it. Sadie Hartman was actually texting me while she was reading it the other day. And she's like, Becky, I don't know. This is bonkers. I'm like, just keep going. Um, I trust me, it'll come through. And that fear is so, the fear in that story is because she keeps switching the narrative on you. Like, well, this is what I just told you, but this is actually the real story. And this, it's a book about, <laughs> it's a book about how we tell stories as much as it is a horror story. And she keeps switching it and reframing and telling the same story from a different perspective. And you don't believe it's going to pan out, but it does. That's what I mean. Like, it got me. You've got me thinking about what's going to come next, but I'm never settled. I'm uneasy the entire time. Mm, That's what I want for my horror. I don't need to be scared the entire time. I need to feel unsettled. Although, that being said, I do not mind a good gory action scene. I am all for that. But um, I need to feel unsettled in different ways. I don't want a one note story that's just going to give me jump scares only. Mm. I want to really think about why I'm scared and why I don't feel, why I feel uneasy as much as why, what's scaring me. So I read a small press book called Lacuna Point that came out in July by Tim Meyer. And what I really love about it is it's a terrifying cosmic horror story, but it's also, there are monsters. There are actual monsters. Also, by the way, there's like a crab horror thing going on right now because there's that and what kind of mother are coming out the second half of this year. And, both of them feature crabs in very violent and scary ways. I don't know what's going on, but mm. what it is at its heart, it's also about the fear of being a creative huh. because this town draws people in who are artists of some kind. 
And I thought that was fascinating. So that's what I mean by the fear needs to be sort of on different levels mm. and keep me interested in it for, and I really enjoy stories that do more than just try to scare you. I think that's the, the heart of it. I want mm. stories that, uh, how to sell a haunted house by Grady Hendrix is a great example. It's about a haunted house, but it's also about family secrets, family trauma, um, brother, sister relationships and what those are like sibling relationships. So that's the type of story I like. Let me, let me summarize a few of the thing, the topics that have been coming up multiple, multiple times in this call. And in your case, it's kind of interesting because there's actually been quite a few and it's hard to pick a through line. <sighs> Things like family and f- love of family and fear of the unknown and real world, real world horror kind of subsume, I would say under anxiety that's slightly different from joy and things that are slightly askew joy and hope uh, also has come up. Mm -hmm. And so there's these kind of different elements that I'm struggling to find a common thread between the three of them. Well, I do think that, you know, I'm definitely an anxious person and um, finding, I get more grounded in other unsettled things because it makes me not feel so much alone with that. And then also I want to believe, and, and I do believe that, that there's joy. I do believe, right. you know, being a public librarian and sitting at a public library desk for 15 years, you see everything, right? Good, bad, horrible things that people can do to each other versus, you know, wonderful moments of, of pure joy. And I definitely believe the, in the best in people. I was going to say, and also in your personal life, not just the stuff that's in the the catalog the next question would be you know, do you have any idea why it is that you like those things i think that's sort of answers itself in some of the things that we've talked about the next question then would be why horror because aren't there other genres that touch on these things yeah and i love horrors precisely because there's that supernatural element there's something beyond that is un- inexplainable and that it, it's just there there's this Something out there you can't define, you can't control, no matter how hard you try, no matter how much you do research or, you know, turn to books for answers or turn to reality. There's, there's something out there that is unknowable. And even though it can be terrifying, it's, there's a beauty in it as well. I, like I say that when I talk about, I mean, some of these monsters that authors create are so creative and so terrifying, but there's a beauty in it. You know, I, I mentioned Jaws earlier because I always feel this connection to it because it came out right before I was born. Yes, the monster is terrifying and the people make terrible decisions. I'm also an elected official in my town. I'm on the library board. And so like elected officials make terrible decisions and bad things or choices are made, but there's a beauty in this like giant ocean, right? There are still scenes where they're looking at the giant ocean and before the, the, the Jaws pops up and terrifies you that there's just a wonder there in all the things that are unknowable out there that you can't even think about. And I think that's why it took me a little longer to get to cosmic horror. It was a little too terrifying, a little too existential, but with age, I think I've come to appreciate that more too. Um, I'm willing to deal with those unknowns Mm. as well. You said something else that I think is interesting. So when you talk about the unexplainable, well, I thought, well, inverse that. So the explainable, well, that's known. And to put it into literary terms, it's a book that's closed. Mm-hmm. So what is it about the unknown, the the unread book that 
attracts you? The unread or the un the open ended? Well, the unknown. I mean, in right? General. Yeah, I mean that's the thing about horror, right? It's never it's never a closed ending. Good horror does not close. It mm. leaves open the possibility for the horror to come back. And I've always enjoyed open ended books because I don't believe life is open and shut. Life doesn't have mm. moments of there's moments of transition, but mm. there's not it, moments of ending um, yeah. until you die. Right. I mean, it's it's just kind of by default and natural, I think, to have uh, intrigue in something open ended and unknown because it's not known. It's not quantified or, or uh, you know, categorized. So you, we always seek out knowing more about this. What comes next? And yeah. it leaves space for conversation. I also am. Um, oh, yeah. I train people to run book discussions as well. I love having book discussions and I tell them open ended books are the best ones to use for book discussions because you you can talk about what happens after you can start the whole and it drives some readers crazy and they get angry right when an <laughs> author doesn't close the, the book but that's what what that's where discussion happens that's yeah. where you i don't want a book that i close and i know i understand why people love romance novels but the the required happy ending and it being so closed is not my favorite to read it's kind of interesting because there are definitely some people who prefer closure and even need closure. Uh, so there's there that interesting dichotomy of this is the thing that you prefer is to not have the closure that what, what, you know, what comes next? What is the conversation? You know, the, the best books you keep thinking about um, yeah. and able to in general of any genre, but they're the ones that stay with you and make you think about, about things outside what was on the page. What else is coming? Exactly. So, is there anything that you've thought of that might be relevant, but hasn't come up on the call? Or was there something you thought of earlier in the call that, you know, you wanted to say, and then the conversation took a left turn? Well, I want to say, and this goes to sort of everything we've talked about. One of the things I do in my work is I, I do not allow people to disparage any sort of genre uh, literature. Mm -hmm. And, and because I'm an expert in horror, this comes up a lot. And just because horror is about fears and scare and has violence and, you know, can also, I, I talk about the thing, it can have sex, it can have violence, it can have terrible things happening to people. I mean, that's kind of required. It yep. gets disparaged um, and it gets seen as lesser. But on the flip side, my editors know this, and I say this all the time. If you ever put the word literary in front of the word horror in one of my reviews, I'm quitting immediately because mm -hmm. that disparages the rest of it. So, so Stephen Graham Jones, when you know you win literary awards, he's not literary horror, he's horror. It's well, it's horror that elevates the style to a literary fiction style but it's still horror and literary fiction by the way is a genre as well and that's a whole other thing i talk about but it is not i will not let people disparage it because it's about difficult things i feel like and i i will challenge them and then it's a cop-out because it's about emotions because it's about how it makes you feel and because it makes you feel uncomfortable and discomfort and tension and anxiety and whatever it is that those dark feelings are does not make it less worthy. I realize I'm preaching to the choir and your listeners, but you, they all know it's out there. This looking down on things that bring up bad things. And for some reason we've elevated really gritty, like crime fiction mm. and that's okay. I'm so excited about the success of S.A. Cosby who writes just realistic, gritty horror adjacent stories, right? He's mm. friends with all the horror writers for a reason, but the ability, uh, People, I'm, I run in literary circles, right? I review for literary magazines. I was on the uh, Carnegie Medal for Fiction and Nonfiction Award uh, two years ago. I was uh, on the committee to pick them. It's like the Pulitzer Prize for libraries. It's the Newbery for adult authors. It's very 
esteemed. And I was proud of the number of dark books I got them to read. Um, <laughs> but, and we did, I mean, um, our, um, the Julie Armfield book, our, our wives of the sea, or we can look up the, the book that got on our long list, but they wouldn't, they wouldn't finish the devil takes you home. They said, and, and that was before it got nominated for literally every major award, right? The Edgar, the Anthony, it won the Stoker, it won the Shirley Jackson Award, tied to the Shirley Jackson Award. This is a book of extreme literary achievement. I mean, a, of extraordinary literary achievement. It's also terrifying and it's real world violence. And one of the people I know on the committee, she's like, and, and it was a person of color too, she's like, this is too violent for me. I can't. And I, for some reason, and it has a huge supernatural twist. And all the violence in that book is to create the supernatural creature that is at the end of the book. It is, and it's realistically based. And and the fact that people just disparage it because, or don't think it's worthy of being held up to higher standards, um, or that's just horror. It's just something that I fight every day. It's one of the things I tell people is, library workers, I'm like, you need to stop thinking that your horror readers are monsters. They just like to read about them. Mm. I like that. It, that kind of echoes something that I have said multiple times on this call, which is that uh, I think that people make sense. You just have to take a moment to talk to them and understand what it is that they're thinking and, you know, under, come to understand why, why they're thinking the, what, what they're thinking. I think that I have so much experience doing that at the service desk too, right? With people, every person that came up to my desk, I, I had to figure out who they were as a person to suggest a book to them. I, I think the, from the mainstream point of view, it's, probably that people think you know well there are murders and serial killers out there and you know aren't they fans of horror and the reality is that you know if you think about any subgenre within american culture you know jocks or nerds or i can't even think of what other ones are are out there but you know there are jocks jocks that are serial killers but how many are there is it what you know one percent half of a percent what whatever that percentage is is it not also likely that the same percentage is true for horror fans? Like why, why are you thinking that there's like 50% of horror fans that are serial killers, but only, you know, 1% of jocks. Like there's, there's some sort of discrepancy about how we're looking at the segments of our community. And that's part of what we're hoping to achieve as part of this podcast is to. And that's why I, sorry. No, good. That's why I talk about so much in, the work I do when I do my genre previews is about what's so exciting about horror right now is this, the, the fact that people of formerly marginalized perspectives are leading the charge in horror. And because they're adding that real world horror, and maybe that's some of my background that likes it, but they're adding some of that real world horror to their stories and they're bringing completely new vision to the old tropes. And I, Stephen Graham Jones is probably the top of the heap of that, but, but not the only and one between Chris and I, and I'm not even the horror fan of it. And I appreciate it because it, it's adding to the voices. It's not even about the horror. It's about the voice. You know what I mean? Exactly. And, and it's where the excitement is. I feel like, because these are all new voices and new ways to look at the things that we've looked at. Um, that, that is the trend I am most excited about. And it's really leading this explosion of horror right now. And, and, it's helping to, I mean, this month that this is coming out, to not reduce the reformatories coming out. I gave it a star review in the June issue of Library Journal. This book is extraordinary. And it's extraordinary because it's an extraordinary story of a haunted uh, former reformatory school for Black children. Um, and there are real ghosts there. But it's also extraordinary because the nuance in the fact that 
every character, black, white, good, bad, they all are implicit in the Jim Crow, all of them. And that look of that true horror, that it wasn't just the white people versus the black people, this nuance of this was everyone in society allowed this to keep happening, um, is, is, was very eye opening, And it's, it's extremely, it's going to be on the top of the list for so many people this year. It comes out um, in October. It's, I'm not sure exactly when, but. A difficult reality. Mm-hmm. Indeed. Uh, well, thank you very much for your time. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Um, yeah. This has been a lot of fun. And thank you to anybody out there listening. Again, if you can, please tell a friend about what we're doing. Uh, or you can support us on Patreon or buy some merch. And we've got links to all that stuff on the website, horrormakesushappy.com. Mm-hmm.